Oh, Courtney. All right, thank you guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and I'm excited today to start a new series of messages on the vision and overall future direction of Riverview Baptist Church. If you're visiting this morning and you're interested in knowing more about where we're going, you have come at an opportune time. What we believe, biblically speaking, is the goal, the mission, the driving force of the church is the Great Commission. We believe making disciples of our neighbors and the nations is what we're called to be about and to do. So Matthew 28, 19 through 20 is a, is a foundational passage of Scripture for us. But where the Bible says that we're to make disciples, we have decided and kind of fleshed out the idea of disciple through the, the language you hear every week, which is... We want to guide people to Christ-centered identity and Christ-centered influence. So what we believe a disciple is, is a disciple is someone who's finding their identity in Christ. Somebody who finds their worth, their joy, their hope, their value in Jesus and in Jesus alone. But we also believe a disciple is somebody who recognizes that God has given them influence. God has given them uh, relationships with their family members, friends, co-workers, that we're to leverage for Christ. So there's an internal component about who you are that's part of being a disciple, and then there's this investment in others that's part of being a disciple. So what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is talking about this. What does it mean for this church to be about guiding people to Christ-centered identity and Christ-centered influence? Another component to this, though, as we unpack this over the next four or five weeks, is we're also going to talk about where we're going. So if if mission and the Great Commission is our mission, it's this task, I want to make a distinction between mission as a task and vision as a destination. Where are we hoping this task takes us as a church? And so over the next four or five weeks, I'll be fleshing out what that looks like. This morning, we're going to start with a a question related to the identity in Christ issue, and that is this. We're going to answer this simple question this morning. You see it on the screen behind you. What is a Christian? Now, you would think maybe this is a simplistic question that needs no elaboration. It's really pretty plain to everybody what that means, but I, I would submit to you that there's actually a great deal of confusion around the word Christian. Without getting too political, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be bipartisan in this. Our, our two major political parties have nominated people, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, who both say they are Christians. Our current president, Barack Obama, despite being accused of being a Muslim, consistently says he's a Christian. You will bump into numerous people on the street that say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, or I'm a Christian, or I'm a... You know, you'll hear people say this all the time. And what we're really seeing in many people's minds is many people believe, if I just say I am, I am. If I give this kind of self-authenticating authority to my statement, doesn't matter what kind of evidence I use to back it up, I can create my own evidence to fit my own needs, I am a Christian, And what we want to say from right from the get-go, if you're new here today, what you need to know is we believe it's important not to just base this question's answer on our own self-authenticating authority. We believe God needs to give us the answer to this question. And we believe God does that through his word very succinctly and clearly. 
So what I want to do this morning is very simple. I want to answer the question, what is a Christian, biblically speaking? If you've got your Bibles open to Luke chapter 9, we're going to be in verse 23. Would you please stand with me to your feet as we honor the reading of God's word? Again, the reason we stand is I believe these are the words of God. If God were here with us, if Jesus was here in the flesh reading and talking to us, we would stand in honor of him being with us. And when we read, it's as if he's doing that very thing. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, we read these words. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is God's word. We believe this is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Would you please pray with me, please? God, every week we come together as a family to gather around your word and to hear from you. And Lord, maybe more so than normal, today I, I feel the weight and the burden of trying to make your word clear. And so, Father, I just confess in front of all these people that I can't do that in my strength and my ability. Lord, I declare again what we sang. Lord, I need you, and we need you through your spirit to take this word and make it clear to us, to drive it deep into our hearts. God, would you remove distractions? Would you open our minds and open our hearts to hear what you have to say? And Lord, as we hear, would you help us not just be hearers of your word, but would you help us be doers? In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, we read these words. If anyone would come after me... Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. I think in verse 23, we get the answer to this simple question, what is a Christian? A little context for you, Luke chapter 9, Jesus has just previously asked the disciples some questions, and one of the disciples has answered and said, we believe, Jesus, you are the Christ. We believe that you're the Son of God. We believe you're the Messiah that we're looking for. And so what Luke does is Luke, in this kind of chronological way, puts after that confession that Peter makes, Jesus wants them to understand, yes, that's right. Yes, that's who I am. I am the Christ. Let me show you what it means to be one of my followers. Let me show you what it really means to be a disciple. In other words, Jesus is saying, if anyone would come after me, in verse 23, let me show you what it means to be a Christian. Jesus uses three phrases to describe this answer, to answer this question. He says, this person must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Let me go ahead and save the suspense here and answer this question very succinctly. What is a Christian? From these three phrases, here's what we get. 
A Christian is a person who replaces the authority and salvation of self with the authority and salvation of Jesus Christ. From Luke 9.23, the simplest way I can describe what a Christian is, is a Christian is a person who rejects the authority and the deliverance and the joy that we think we can get on our own, rejects that, and a Christian is in somebody in turn who rejects that and replaces it with the authority, the rule and the reign, and the salvation, the deliverance and joy that Jesus Christ offers us. Let me show you how that breaks out in this passage of Scripture. These first two of three phrases, denial of self and taking up cross daily, speak to the rejection of self. And when Jesus says take up our cross daily, that doesn't really mean the same thing it means to us as it meant to them when Jesus first said it. When we hear the word cross, typically we think of like a, a, like a, a necklace with a nice kind of religious symbol. But when Jesus first spoke these words, his hearers would have heard instrument of execution and horrible death. So if you think about it this way, what Jesus is saying to modern listeners is take up your, ex- take up your electric chair daily. Jesus is saying take up the gas chamber, take up lethal injection of yourself every single day. This is also consistent with what he says about denial of self. What Jesus is saying is we have to reject the penchant and the desire we have to be our own masters, to look for answers within us. We have to reject that and instead say that the answer is not within me. What's actually within me is the problem. Denial of self, executing our desires means that I reject the idea that within me is the answer And I embrace the fact that actually what's within me is the problem. Now, here's why this is so important, okay? Culturally speaking, we're conditioned through media, music, news, everything kind of pumping into us, that what's actually in us is the answer. And here's the way this gets more caught than taught in our minds. The really virtuous person in 2016, in many people's minds, is the person who looks deep within themselves figures out what their dreams and longings are, maybe even figures out their identity as as it relates to gender. They look deep within themselves to figure that out through their feelings and through taking inventory of their own heart. And the really virtuous person is the person who can figure that out and then lives that out. It's the person who figures out what their dreams or longings are and pushes everyone else out of the way that would stand in the way of them living out their dreams. I don't know if you've heard the popular phrase, you'll hear people say, be who you are. Or as every Disney movie ends, follow your heart and you'll never go wrong, right? Follow your dreams and you'll always be happy. And what's behind this idea is that if you figure out what matters most to you, if you figure out your dreams, your longings, your fulfillment, your identity, and you live that out, it's only when you do that that you'll truly be happy. This is what's not taught explicitly at points, although it's there. It's more caught very subtly in our culture. That what's within you, that's the answer. This is very different than the way we used to think, the way other generations of people have been raised. Uh, In previous cycles of culture, it was, well, you're a really virtuous person if you sacrifice for everyone else around you. 
If you lay down your, what you want, you lay down your desires, and you put the desires and needs and wants of others ahead of you, that's really virtuous. What's happened in the last really 20, 30 years, especially in the 60s and ramping up forward, is this flipping of the script. No, you're not supposed to sacrifice for anyone else. You're supposed to follow your respective dreams, and everyone else is supposed to move out of the way. There are a lot of problems with this, and I'm going to unpack these problems over the morning. One of the problems just out of the gate that we run into when we look at this issue is this issue of identity and looking within yourself for it. The problem is, is that it assumes that we're all on our own separate little islands in our own little worlds. When in reality, we're not on our own islands, we're actually all connected One of the reasons I believe our society has become so litigious, you guys know this word, litigious? We want to sue everybody over any little thing, right? Have you guys noticed this? There's, I think part of it's because they're lawyers that are out of work, okay, and they need, they need more work. If you're a lawyer, I'm sorry, you can, you can talk to me afterwards. Uh, But I think some of it is because we've got this desire, we've got this longing for our identity, respectively, to be lived out, and everyone else should move out of the way. This is really an example of this that we've seen in our culture, is in the marriage debates. So 2014, leading into 2015, the, 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 the dialogue was with the same-sex folks that wanted marriage to be redefined. They said, listen, this is not going to affect you. This is about a group of people's happiness. Who are you to stand in the way of someone else's happiness? This was, this was the argument, this was the discussion, this was what was said. It wasn't just caught, this is what explicitly was taught. If, if you are standing in the way of somebody's happiness, you, you're in the wrong here. This is not even going to affect you if we change the laws. June 2015, the Obergefell decision, the Supreme Court changes marriage and redefines it at the federal level. And from that point forward, what we've not seen is a live and let live kind of policy. Instead, what we've seen... It's people being hauled into court, sued all over this country if they disagree with the new moral standards that have been enforced by the Supreme Court. In our country today, disagreement is equivalent now to discrimination. Have you guys seen this? Disagreement is equal to discrimination. We can't have a civil discussion between two groups of people that disagree. Why is that? Does that seem odd to you? Let me tell you the reason why that's happening. The reason it's happening is because the narrative that's behind everything that's happening in our culture is if you find out what's true to you and you're living that and somebody stands in your way, they're oppressing you. They're discriminating against you and they're in the wrong. And so what it creates is just this really crazy maelstrom of accusations of discrimination and lawsuits. And we're just going nuts as a country. I mean, it feels like, I don't know if you feel this, I feel this way. It just feels like we've gone kind of crazy as a society. We've gone mad. And the reason is everybody thinks they're on their own little island. Hyper-individualism is what that's called. But in reality, we're all connected. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says the first step to becoming a Christian, to being a, a, a true disciple of Jesus, is to reject that cultural narrative. To reject the idea that self is all authority and that if I follow my dreams, I'll really be happy. To turn about, to kill that, and instead, look at your Bibles, verse 23. Let you deny yourself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The answer Jesus gives 
to what we're to do instead of following our own desires is actually to replace them with the authority and salvation Jesus offers. Now, when Jesus uses the phrase, follow me, there's also some historical cultural background we need to get the significance of this. Because in Jesus' day and age, it was very much a rabbi, teacher, pupil, learner kind of relationship that drove education. So there weren't modern universities like we have today back then. There would be a great teacher somewhere, and these learners, these disciples would come and sit around this teacher's feet and learn from them. And so what Jesus is saying is, you and I are called to submit ourselves under his authority, under his power, and to pray for him to guide us into salvation, forgiveness, and grace. Now, we're going to do a little audience participation. First service did okay with this. I think you guys will do all right with that. need a few volunteers. I want to show you what following Jesus looks like, okay? I'm going to ask Nate. He's looking down at the ground, so I got him. Nate, come on over here. <laughs> Ethan, come on over here. Michael, come on over here. Come here with me. Yeah, you guys, come to the back of the room. What I'm going to do is uh, I want to show you what following somebody looks like. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask these guys to do a few things in a second from the back of the room here. Uh, if you're falling asleep back here, you're not now. Uh, and uh, you guys get behind me here, okay? And what I want to do is I'm going to ask these guys to follow me. And then when I get to the stage, I want you, I will ask a question. I'm going to ask, what did it take for these guys to follow me? So watch what happens in this relationship. When I ask that question, I'm not asking a rhetorical device where you just listen and think. I'm actually going to ask for you to answer, okay? So watch what happens. I'm going to stand up front, and I want you to watch what they do. And I want us to think and reflect on what that means as it relates to following Jesus, okay? You ready? Okay. Just making sure everybody's awake back here. All right, follow me, guys. They're going to follow me. Now, if they're making faces at me or doing stuff, I can't see that. But I want you to watch what happens when I say, follow me. All right. So, you guys stand over here to my left. What happens when these guys follow me? What are some of the things that happened when they followed me? Could they waited for me? If I had stopped, I should have done that. I should have just stopped in the middle of the aisle. They probably would have done that. What else happened? They were looking at me. They were watching what I was doing. Okay. Okay. They were allowing me to lead, even reluctantly so, a few of them. Yeah. Okay. Same speed. So there was a measured example that they were following in that. Yeah. What else did they do in order to follow me that way? They were trusting me. Somebody that was in the first service. Uh, you know how a teacher asks a question and they're kind of looking for an answer? I never do that. Um, they, they trusted that I was going to take them someplace that was at least not as bad as where they were, right? Now, imagine this for a moment, okay? Imagine that these three guys, under their chairs, was a lethal, poisonous snake, who likes snakes in here? Anybody like snakes? Tyler Walgamot likes snakes. Okay, you, these, these guys are too young to know what that really means. I had one person in the first service that likes snakes. Did one of you say, do you like snakes? Oh, Michael. Okay, all right. Well, this would not work for him. But assume all of them are deathly afraid of this poisonous snake. Now imagine that what I'm doing when I say follow me is I'm moving them from that snake coiled under their chair, moving them from incredible danger to incredible safety. 
Then, if there's a poisonous snake under each of your chairs that I planted before the service started, which there's not. Some of you might want to look, but there's not. I can just promise you. If there were, and I said, follow me, it wouldn't just be me being, I wouldn't just be an example, right? I, I wouldn't just be a teacher. I would be more than that. I would be rescuing you from danger and harm and peril and moving you to safety. Can we give these guys a hand for being my guinea pigs? Thank you, guys. So here's what I want you to know. When Jesus calls us to follow him, it is very much you and I saying, I'm placing myself under your authority. I'm fixing my eyes on you, and what you do, Jesus, is what I'm going to do. But what you and I have to realize is that Jesus is more than just a teacher. He's more than just an example. Jesus is our deliverer. Jesus is the one who rescues us, because when Jesus says, follow me, it's not just a teacher example kind of thing. It's also Jesus saying, you're in danger. You see, every one of us have the snake of sin coiled around our hearts. That snake I told you that's under your chair, it's actually inside us. And if it goes unchecked, it will kill us. This authority of self, this authority of our own desires that we think is going to make us happy, the craziest thing is that doing what feels right to you actually doesn't make you happy. It actually destroys you. There could not be a greater, more incipient, more deviant lie in our culture than if you're getting to do what feels good to you, that you're happy. Now, the snake of sin, the snake of that poison that's there. So when Jesus calls us to follow him, what he's doing is he's saying, I'm not just a teacher, I'm not just an example, I'm not just an authority that you submit yourself to. I'm also the one that's going to deliver you from the danger that you're in. But here's the key. The only way these guys get up out of their chair is if they trust me. You see, trust or faith is the motor that moves me from danger and moves me to being a follower of Jesus. Well, what am I trusting? If you get up out of that chair, what you're trusting is that the problem is within you and that Jesus is the answer. You're trusting that Christ can deliver you from this danger that you're sitting under. Well, how does Jesus deliver me from that danger? It's because 2,000 years ago, Jesus crushed the head of that serpent. He crushed the head of that snake. He destroyed the penalty that has your number. How did he do that? He hung on a cruel cross. The penalty that was meant for you and that was meant for me, Jesus took that on himself and he resurrected three days later to say, now you can follow me. And when you replace the authority of self, when you repent, when you turn from that and you embrace my authority, what I'm doing and you follow me, I forgive you. I cleanse you, I heal you from the sickness of your heart. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who rejects the authority and salvation of self and embraces the authority and salvation Jesus has to offer in faith. So, there are three groups of people in this room this morning. Three groups of folks. Some of you this morning are Christians. And, and when I say all this, this sounds very familiar to you, and you're going, yep, 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 yep. One of the ways I want to challenge you this morning, if you are indeed a follower of Jesus, is I want you to think about your life in Christ like you're following someone. I think it's very easy and it's very dangerous at times for Christians to think of their lives in very kind of static terms. 
right? It's like I, I, I accept Jesus, and like my salvation is like a ticket that I have, and I'm going to heaven now, and I have this ticket, and it just kind of sits here, and, and, and I kind of have it there as my insurance policy, and when I die, I pick it up, and I, I cash in my policy, and I go to heaven. When in reality, salvation Yes, is a, is a gift that God gives us, but it's a relationship, it's a bond, it's a connection that's established in which Jesus says, I'm not just going to save you one time, I'm going to continue to save you, and I will save you. Following Jesus means there's a progression to your faith. One of the things that was very confusing to me as a child is the point of conversion was emphasized so much in the churches I grew up in. I thought that repenting of my sin and trusting Jesus was just something I did when I first became a Christian. When the reality is, repenting and trusting Christ is actually something I do all the time. Repentance of my sin and trusting Jesus is actually a daily occurrence. It's how I grow. It's how I move forward. And so what I would just say to you after pastoring here for three and a half, almost four years, can you believe that? Three and a half, four years is that one of the unique kind of challenges we face in this area is the challenge of comfort. It is very easy to get very comfortable about our faith here in this area. What I want you to know is following Jesus means, believers, there are going to be times when we follow Jesus into very uncomfortable waters. There are going to be times when Jesus calls us to do things that are uncomfortable to us. We're following Jesus. We follow him no matter the cost. Jesus is much less worried about our comfort and our happiness than he is about us looking more like Christ and our holiness. But there's a second group of people here today. There may be some of you here today who think you're Christians and you're not. You think you're a Christian and you're not. Do I have any biblical standing for saying that I think there are going to be people who think they're Christians when they're not? Yes. The Bible is clear that there will be people who will stand before God one day and say, didn't we do this and didn't we do that and aren't we Christians? And God's going to say, I don't know you. So I feel the weight and the burden of not making a bunch of you doubt that really are Christians, but at the same time not pulling any punches for those of you that think you are when you're not. So let me just say this. Becoming a Christian doesn't happen just because you say it. Well, I, I have my own definition of what a Christian is and that's what I am. That's not Christianity. That's another religion entirely. The one that you get to make up whatever you get to believe and live that out, that's not Christianity. I appreciated a uh, Christian pastor who was on a, a talk show, and he was part of a panel, and, and one of the guys was a Christian pastor who was just saying off-the-wall things, and finally the, the kind of more conservative evangelical pastor said, you know, you don't just get to make up whatever you want to make and believe that. That's not Christianity. What's also not Christianity is a premium that we've put in many circles of evangelicalism on experience and emotion. A lot of us, when we think about Christianity, we think, well, I had this experience, and i got to be careful, because I do think experience is part of knowing Christ. There is emotional highs and lows that we go through in the Christian life. But if all of my Christian life is an experience and a, and a series of emotions I've felt maybe to service or when a song comes on or in specific moments, I want you to know that's not Christianity either. What is Christianity? How do I know if I'm a Christian? Here's the simple litmus test. Is your trust in Jesus producing transformation? Okay? How do I know I'm a Christian? Is my trust in Jesus bringing any kind of change in my life whatsoever? 
So if you're taking notes, write down James chapter 2 for more reading on this later. James is clear that without, if you, if you have faith, and if you say you have faith, but there's no change in your life, you don't really have faith. Faith without works is dead. So here's the question. If you're wrestling, am I really a Christian? I'm not really sure. Is your trust in Christ, is there a trust in Christ that's producing any kind of change in your thinking, in your feeling, or in your doing? If there's no change whatsoever that's showing up in your life, you're probably not a Christian. I say that with no joy or happiness in my heart. I say that feeling the incredible burden and responsibility to tell you the truth. You don't get to make it up. It's not just a series of experiences. If it's really there, there should be fruit that's produced in your life. If that fruit's not there, you're not a Christian. But there's a third group of people here, and that group might have just grown. The third group is people here who are not Christians at all, and you know it. Some of you may have thought you were till a few minutes ago, and now you know you're not. Can I say that's good news? That's a good place to be this morning? Not in the sense of we're glad that you're there, but in the sense that God offers something to you to get you out of that mess. If you're not a Christian, I'm going to close this morning by explaining to you from this passage of Scripture why you should become a Christian. We've talked about what a Christian is. Now I want to turn our attention to why should you become a Christian? I mean, isn't it just one of many? Why why does it matter if you're a Christian or not? Let me give you two quick reasons from this passage of Scripture as to why you should become a Christian. Look at your Bibles at verse 24. It says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Reason number one, why should you become a Christian? It's because only Jesus can save you. The reason you should become a Christian is because you cannot save yourself from the danger of that snake in your heart. Look in your Bibles at verse 24 again. It says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Another way of saying that is, if you try on your own to save yourself from self, you can't do that. You are unable to save yourself from sin. Totally incapable in every kind of way. This is also amplified by the fact that even in verse 25, if you gain the whole world... In other words, if you accomplish every dream, everything you're trying to set out to do, and you, your resume is just filled with all the accomplishments that you hope you would gain, that still won't save you. Think about it this way. You are no more able to save yourself than my three-year-old is able to pay my bills. Now think about that for a second. You guys know my Noah? He's about, about yay tall, beautiful blonde hair, blue eye, little boy. And I said, Noah... Today, mommy and daddy want you to pay our bills. I sit him down at the table. I give him the computer. I stack up the bills next to him. I give him some envelopes if he wants to go old school, snail mail way and pay some bills. I give him some stamps even. I say, Noah, here's all the bills. Here's all the information. I'll be back in an hour. How's that going to go? Totally clueless. My son has no conception of even what money is, much less responsibility. And what he's supposed to do? In the same way that my three-year-old is totally unable in any way to pay my bills, 
You and I don't have the capacity in the slightest to save ourselves. Why? Because this sin in our hearts, not only does it put a penalty over us that Jesus pays for us on the cross, but this sin in our hearts keeps us captive. If you're taking notes, write down Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, where Jesus uh, Paul is talking about Christ's kingdom, and he says that, that we've been transferred from the domain of darkness. In other words, sin is this authoritative power that keeps us enslaved to our own desires. What has to happen in order for us to get out of this? Look back at verse 24 at your Bibles. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Important word next, but, contrasting word, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The way that you and I receive the forgiveness and grace of God, the way that Jesus saves us, is when we recognize we can't save ourselves. We lose our life. We deny ourselves for Christ's sake. Is only when salvation comes. So think of another word picture in your mind. Imagine someone is drowning, okay? And this person drowning in this pool, is the deep end, they've gotten in, they can't swim, and and they're flailing around, right? They're flailing their arms, and they're screaming and shouting and yelling for help and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and they're just going up and down, up and down. Their arms are swinging wildly. What's the worst thing you can do to try to save that person? Anybody know? Jump in while they're still flailing around. Because when they train people on how to save people in that situation, they tell you, look, if you jump in while they're flailing around and beating on people and doing stuff, you'll both drown. You have to wait so that person gets exhausted enough to where they're not going to clock you in the face when you're trying to save them. You have to wait till they, in a sense, give up. This applies in the spiritual world. Some of us are trying to save ourselves, and what we look like is we, we're trying to do good things, we're comparing ourselves to other people, we're trying to look to our works and our ability, and, and maybe even some religious things that we've done, and we're saying, look at all these things. And what it looks like to God is we're flailing around trying to save ourselves from drowning while we're going up and down. The way that you and I come to experience God's forgiveness and grace is when we stop flailing our arms and we say, God, I need you. So when Jesus says in verse 24, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it, he's saying only when you and I really give up and turn from ourselves and trust Christ that we can be saved. Number two, why should you become a Christian? It's because in addition to only Jesus saving, what we need to recognize is only Jesus truly rules and reigns. Jesus is really the only true king in the universe. Look at verse 25, excuse me. Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus here references the fact that he's going to return one day. We remember the fact that Jesus not only died for our sins, taking our penalty on himself, he rose again, defeating our penalty. And one day, Jesus is going to gloriously return to establish his rule and reign on this earth in a unique and visible way. It's happening. That's where history is going. And Jesus is saying is that when that happens, there's going to be this authority and dominion given to Christ. If you're taking notes, it's Daniel chapter 7 that Jesus is quoting here. This one that's coming on the clouds will be given all dominion and authority. And it's where Daniel 7 if you're taking notes, 
Philippians 2 come together. Because in this moment, what Jesus is saying is when he comes and when he comes back, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Say it with me that Jesus is Lord. That's what's going to happen. And in that moment, Jesus is saying we have to recognize that if we reject Christ, we sin opposed to him as the ruler and reign, the one who reigns over all things. But what's interesting is verse 27 points us to some good news for us today. The good news is that Jesus says that some of the disciples who were standing there listening to him would not taste death until they see the kingdom. Now, what is that talking about? If you read on in chapter 9 of Luke, what you'll see is that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain. And when he takes them up the mountain, what we see is that Jesus, it's called transfigures before them. It's another way of saying Jesus shows them who he really is. And when Jesus shows him who he really is, his glory, his splendor, his brightness, it's so incredible, it's so beautiful, it's so overwhelming that Peter says, let's build some places to live and let's stay here. Let's not leave this place. It's so incredible. But what verse 27 points to in principle is the fact that Christ Jesus offers us a place in his kingdom. The glorious and good news that Jesus tells us here is that he offers every disciple a place in his kingdom. So watch this. Jesus not only saves us from something, he saves us for something, a purpose, following him, but he also saves us in such a way that we are protected and safe for the rest of our lives, never to lose that protection again. I want you to do something for me. I want you to grab a bulletin or a piece of paper and grab a pen. Grab a pen or a piece of paper close by. And in that piece of paper, I want you to draw a rectangle, okay? Why don't you draw a rectangle? This is what we're going to close with this morning. And at the top of this rectangle, I want you to put this title, All Information, Past, Present, Future. You can use the words knowledge or information. All knowledge, all information, past, present, future. So this box on your paper represents... All knowledge, everything that can or will be known, past, present, and future. And here's what I want you to do with that box. I want you to color in with your pen how much you think you know. Okay? This is a, a legitimate exercise. I want you to take your pen, and in that, in that rectangle, I want you to color in how much knowledge, past, present, and future, you think you know. Okay? Give you just a moment to do that. Think hard. Now, if, if most of us are honest and if everybody took a selfie with their rectangle, which I do not want you to do, but if you were to do that, I think most of us, if we're honest, would say, I'm going to kind of like put a small dot in one of these corners, right? Every once in a while when I do this with somebody, I'll have some, like, you know, cocky college student. If you're a college student, I love you. But, you know, sometimes you can be a little cocky, a little, you know, color in, like, a big part of the box. Yeah, I'm, I'm a sophomore, you know. Uh, and uh, yeah, that, that'll happen, everyone, which actually means wise fool, by the way. Uh, I'll, I'll color in a big part of that, and, you know, I, I'm majoring in electrical engineering or something, and, and they think they're a lot. But the reality is we actually don't know a whole lot. The reason I say that is this. Some of us think we can rule and run and reign in our own little universe. But the reality is, when we really think carefully, we're not qualified to run anything. 
we're surely not qualified to run our own lives as it relates to our eternal destiny and our final resting place. We're not qualified to do that. But yet, why do we think we can figure out the mysteries of the universe when we know a dot of all information, past, present, and future? It's because not only does this sin, this snake that's coiled in our hearts, not only does it make us unable, it, it enslaves us, this sin in our hearts also blinds us from the truth. It deceives us into thinking we know things that we don't know. What I want you to know this morning is a Christian is a person who replaces the authority that offered, that, that's offered by self and the salvation we think we can get to through ourselves and instead embraces the authority and salvation Jesus offers. If you're here today not a Christian, the reasons I would tell you that you should become that, that you should reject self and embrace Jesus is because you can't save yourself. And you can't even rule and reign in your own life. Only Christ Jesus can do those things. Would you pray with me, please? Every head bowed, every eye closed.